namo tassa pakawato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakawato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakawato arahato sama samputassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasam so for those of you who are new to buddhism my problem is I've been talking about this stuff for 40 years, so you know, and I realized that I've thought about these ideas quite deeply for a long time, and then formulated them in in fairly simple sentences. But it's taken me a long time to you know, look at it and understand it in my own way, and then try to express it in ways which are hopefully understandable. But I think. Uh, to get a perspective of where I'm coming from and where my tradition comes from and uh, why we meditate, I think you you do have to go back to the to the what we think is the original intention of the Buddha's renunciation, and then his renunciation came from a a deep questioning of life, and that allegorically, as many of you know, comes from the, the story of the four signs or the four messengers. So, again, most of you know this allegory, but the story goes that the, uh, the Buddha was a very accomplished person, very gifted, uh, and also quite reflective, questioned life, very compassionate man by the accounts we have. And... Uh, he lived a very protected life, and so as the allegory goes, at one time he wants to kind of understand life more, and he goes out into the marketplace with his chariot and charioteer. It's kind of the Lexus of those days. And uh, he sees, for the first time, he sees a sick person. Again, it's an allegory. And he's shocked by that vision, and he asks his charioteer, Chana, what's that? China says, that's a sick person. We all get sick. And if we don't die young, we all get sick. And he is very much shocked by that. And as the texts say, the conceit of youth falls away from him. I'm there. <laughs> the conceit of youth is long gone. <laughs> I get up from the floor. I feel like a arthritic giraffe sometimes. <laughs> I'm... You know, clumsy. I used to be rather athletic. Now I'm clumsy. So the conceit of youth has <laughs> gone long ago. But Siddhartha is now, Siddhartha is like 29 years old. And then the second sighting is he's out with Chana again. He sees a, a, a very elderly person, very, very bent over with osteoporosis and uh, very weak and very frail, eyesight gone and so on and so forth. Very, very frail. And again, he's shocked, and uh, he looks at him, what's that? I've never seen that before. And China says, that's an old person. The conceit, what did I say the first? The conceit of health falls away, and the conceit of youth falls away. So the conceit of health is like the feeling you get when everyone else has the flu and you don't. You somehow think you're superior. Don't believe it. So the first one is where the conceit of health falls away, then... The conceit of youth falls away, and then he sees a corpse, and he's very, very shocked. 
And he's asked Chan Chan Chan, he says, oh, this is what all beings, all beings who are born must die. It's the, it's in the nature of things. And uh, Siddhartha now loses the conceit of life, which is a strange idea. But he realizes, oh, I'm subject to that too. And the whole sense of meaning comes out. What's, what's the meaning of life? We just had a memorial service for a good friend of the monastery at the monastery. And her son gave a, a eulogy. And she died much younger than expected from a, a very quick form of cancer. And in his eulogy, he said, yeah, what's, what's the, so what was the meaning of her life if she had to die so quickly and so on? And this is the question that comes up in Siddhartha's mind. What is it, you know? If we're all destined to die, what is what's the point of all this business? And then the fourth sighting is, of course, it goes out with China, and there's a, a renunciant sitting in the forest meditating. And he's never seen that before because he's lived a rather jolly life, I guess. And China says that is someone who is searching for the deathless, someone who's trying to go beyond birth and death. Now that's a very Indian way of considering spiritual journey and that's not a the abrahamic religion doesn't really the abrahamic religions don't tend to talk about they tend to use a deified form of transcendence so that language you can find it in mystical language a little bit but it was very important to understand then what the buddhist search was about and how he was searching then he renounces his conventional life and he says now i'm going to search for the deathless for the sake of compassion for all sentient beings. And I think if you don't understand that bit, and you just take odd bits of Buddhism, mindfulness, and things like that, and don't put it into that larger context, then a lot of it won't make sense to you. Because a lot of it can sound nihilistic, a kind of rejection of life. But the Buddha's search was for some, you know, this kind of profound liberation from this whole cycle of being. So that's another problem in the West that people don't, they're not necessarily interested in things like rebirth. So the one question I ask Westerners a lot is like, when you die, do you think it's a black hole? Do you think that's the it? Nothing. Schluss. Amen. No consciousness. And that's a, uh, an important distinction, really. So when I ask some people, they most people think that somehow consciousness has some some kind of continuity. So that to me would be important also in considering why the Buddha was teaching, because his belief and then his vision, his psychic vision, was yeah, beings are born and they die. They're born and they die according to their karma. Now this isn't a necessary uh, belief to take up if you want to practice meditation. But it is pretty integral to trying to understand the structure of the Buddhist teachings. And Western practices of mindfulness, and they try to homogenize Buddhism in a kind of very, kind of just like do mindfulness practices and so on. But that wouldn't be Buddhism. It would be one aspect of Buddhism, and it's certainly a good one. There's a company in California that has a mindfulness officer. Interesting, huh? And... Uh, I'll be going to Washington at the end of June with Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Pasano and others. And we've been invited to teach mindfulness in Congress. 
But anyway, so mindfulness is like the flavor of the month, isn't it? Which is good. But I think the way the teaching is placed and to understand why the Buddha is saying don't do this and don't do that, this idea of the unconditioned or the deathless or the unborn, this is the language we use for the kind of spiritual realization that, that the Buddha realized. A few months ago I read a, this, these two books by an author called Hariri, Israeli author, Sapiens and Homo Deus. It's very popular. It was in the Guardian, so I read it. Um, and he is uh, the author is a Goenka disciple. He dedicates the book to Goenka, Mr. Goenka. But in it, he says, you know, a line obviously stayed with me that religion is a deal, and spirituality is a journey. And he was he was talking about the Abrahamic religions, but it certainly fits traditional Buddhism. So Abrahamic religions, if you fulfilled God's commandments, then you'll be reborn with him in heaven. If you don't, you're in trouble. The Buddhist thing, good karma, you get good results, bad karma, you get bad results, so behave yourself. It's the deal. Now, which of those is true? They're fairly similar. So religion as deal, religion as belief, Religion as, uh, or spirituality as a journey, that's, you know, I, 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 uh, I mean, I'm, I think I've got the deal pretty much covered. Whatever way this <laughs> pans out. So if it's a black hole, it's okay, I've had a good life. Uh, if not, I probably got it, you know, I'll probably get a comfortable chair next time around or something. <laughs> but the journey is really, I mean, that's what I'm interested in. And the deal part is the, the foundation for an easy journey. You know, if I live morally and I live in a way which is uh, responsible and sensitive to other beings, then the foundation of my life is very solid, very stable, and I can I can journey and explore in a much easier way. Yet if I live a very immoral and confused life and I'm, you know, I just follow my angers and resentments and fears and jealousies, then it's just chaos. So the journey becomes almost impossible. So the foundation of this exploration or this journey or this journey of discovery to the unconditioned is based on being good people, you know, to live a good life and to take care of your mom and dad and uh, to learn how to cook and drive a car and make sure you don't buy a house in Toronto or <laughs> whatever way you have to live in the, in the world. So, but, but being a good person isn't the end. You know, that's not the goal. It's the method. It's the foundation. To dismiss that would, would be foolish. Right? So, I assume we're all good people. So we've done that, all right? <laughs> you know, people I meet are really good people. They, they're responsible. They're, they're, they have moral integrity. They're concerned about the planet. They try to take care of their parents. So, you know, I feel that that part of Buddhism doesn't have to be addressed so much. So the other part is the discovery of what the Buddha discovered. And there's many ways to talk about it, but one of the ways you could talk about it is that it, it is a piece of, it's a kind of consciousness or an aspect of consciousness that is profoundly peaceful and isn't afflicted by change. All right, so that's very important. It's not afflicted by change. So we say in Buddhism everything changes. Not true. That which begins ends. That which is born dies. That changes. 
But the Buddha's discovery was the unchanging. And I think that's a big, I find that in among, you know, Buddhist circles, people just will say everything changes. Well, yeah, yeah, the weather changes and so on. But that, that was the whole point of the Buddha's renunciation and his search was to discover the unchanging. So that, I always find that story quite helpful. Like, like it's kind of going back to basics. Say, what? So what was, how was the Buddha practicing? What was he doing? Was he just doing anapanasati kind of for just to get calm or whatever? No, so his, his search was for the unconditioned, the unborn, and this is difficult language. And I think the approach to that, the avenue to that is good living, good moral living, and, and, and so on. And, and it's both love and awareness, because when we have the loving states of mind, compassion, altruistic joy, a peacefulness, we're not in conflict with the way things are. Say like the train. The train roars through here, my mind, your mind, and it's not really a problem. So if my heart has a kind of openness to life, then it arises and ceases. But if I've chosen a duality, uh, like I live in the country, you know, and the loudest thing I get are the red-winged blackbirds, <laughs> right? Or the wind. The, the sense impact of Toronto is huge in comparison to where I live. So if I take my position, if I think that peace is, say, environmental, the monastery, then I can't be here. So the peace that's in the monastery is not the unconditioned. It's a conditioned peace. It's dependent, right? It's contingent. So my comfort with that sound is not liberation. It's simply comfort with that sound. But if I can be here and hear the roaring of the train and see the train come and go, I hear the train come and go, and be with the heat in the body and all of that and not be moved by that, then I'm inclining to the unborn or the unconditioned or the peace of the mind which is not dependent on causes and conditions. All right? So what I asked you to do in this meditation was, you know, the train started to roar through, so I stopped giving the instruction. And then we all listened to that. No choice, really, unless you're really thinking furiously. <laughs> and then it ceased. And I asked, what didn't, what didn't change? There's something that was there all the time, yeah? And then the uh, ambulance came through. Mm. So that arose and it ceased. But what didn't come and go? If there is an element of consciousness that is not born and does not die, then it can't be tomorrow. It's not something like if you try to discover something tomorrow, it's something which is changing, something that's born tomorrow. So it always has to be in this moment. If you, if you look at the logic of it, it always has to be here and now. And that's the way we talk about the Dharma. It's not a matter of time. It's here and now. And because it is something which is unchanging, it can't be an object. It can't be a sense object. So that's how the analysis in Buddhism works. Sound. Sound changes, right? Good sound, bad sound, no sound, lots of sound. Bodily feelings. Come and go, good and bad. Tastes, smells. Thoughts, tactile feelings, emotions, memories, storylines, families, planets, planets.
planet Earth, species, Viridhammo, this body, my mom, the light bulbs. <laughs> this, all of that objective stuff is coming and going, right? That's why Buddhism is, is saying, okay, if there is this possibility of a transcendent peace, which is beyond conditions, beyond the conditioned world, then where would you look for that? And if you're looking for it in an object, you're looking in the wrong place because objects are changing. Here's our friend. Right? Objects come and they go. But again, what is it that knows that? So right now, that's changing. What's unchanging? And someone coughs. So our attention... What Buddhism is saying, our attention is very much taken up with objects. And it has to be. You know, when you drive your car, you don't want to go into space. <laughs> You'd be dead. I was spaced out, man. This is great. Um, when you're cooking a meal, you have to make sure that the eggs don't get burnt. Well, I've been making a desk for the library out of cherry. When I'm using the router, be very careful. We have no more fingers left. So we have to pay attention to the objective world. And we do. But is that all there is? Is, is there only sense experience? If that's all we have, then let's maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. Right? And we've all done that. Right? Has anyone maximized their pain and minimized their pleasure deliberately? Maybe you've done it stupidly. But so, we that's the project we take up. We kind of try to make ourselves comfortable, happy, and excited, and interested, and stoned, and drunk, and sober, and all you know different ways we, we do that. And lo and behold, we find, well, that was fun, interesting, horrible, rotten, great, but it wasn't deeply peaceful. It wasn't profoundly peaceful, and it certainly changed. And so some of us begin to say, well, it can't be about eat, drink, and be merry. It can't be about just always getting what I want, because we've tried that. And we begin to have a more inner world, because we realize that it can't be out there. It can't be about relationships or food or aesthetics. It has to be something in here. And we, can't, we begin to come home. We begin to come home. Then we start to meditate, and then we try to get enlightened, which is a disaster. For you know, I don't know about you, but you know, fortunately, I gave up on it long ago. But best move I made. <laughs> you know, we we pick up meditation and we try furiously, don't we? We try to get some meditative state, right, and get rid of our thoughts. But that's still becoming. Think about it. It's still about me being inadequate, and I'm a basket case. <laughs> now I have to really meditate. And then they'll get that Nibbana stuff then. But that's still in time. And that's a failed project. It can't work. So then you begin to, you know, as we mature in meditation, we say it can't be about becoming. It has to about be about being. Being. Okay, being. And that's where you start to get into the teachings around desire. Because desire is about becoming. And it's about becoming more happy or getting rid of the unhappiness. It's about me having some, wanting something in the future or, or just being absorbed in sense consciousness. You begin to see that where liberation lies is in this difficult word, non-attachment.
or non-grasping. Now, non-grasping is not a state of never feeling anything. No, it's a state of knowing the way things are and allowing them to change. So when we listen to the train and we contemplate the changing nature of sound, we are inclining to the unconditioned. We're inclined to the peace of the mind because we're not attached to the sound of the train. When I get annoyed at the sound of the train and think, what kind of a place is this? I should be in Perth, blah, blah, blah. Then that's attachment. That's preoccupation with an object, a sound object. And that preoccupation is not immoral, but it prevents me from realizing the deep silence of the mind because I'm, I'm preoccupied with an object. So non-grasping or non-attachment is the non-preoccupation with the sense experience, sight, sound, and so on. It's not getting rid of it, not saying anything wrong about it, but it's spending some period of time non-grasping. And that's what we hopefully did in this meditation. That, I, you know, I, I suggested bits of your body to look at, but it wasn't through attachment. It was through witnessing, through awareness. And so whether your knee hurt or not, or whether you know, it was hot or cold, it didn't really matter because what we're emphasizing is the awareness rather than the object of awareness. And that's the secret of Buddhist practice as we emphasize the awareness rather than the objects of awareness. Desire emphasizes the objects. So if my bladder's bursting, I'm going to go for desire. <laughs> I'm going to go to the toilet, right? And that's a, that's a function in nature. I'm not going to sit here, oh, non-desire. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go because that's a natural function. So there's nothing wrong with desire. It's not saying it's right or wrong, right? And we live in a desire realm, and this body is a desire body. So it's not like a, a kind of wet blanket philosophy where it's bad to go to the toilet or to enjoy music or enjoy food. It's just saying that if that's the only place you're looking, then that's not a spiritual journey. That's a hedonistic journey. And all of us have some hedonism in our life, right? It's all right. So I, I enjoy coffee, right? That's a touch of hedonism, touch of sensuality. But I know that the coffee is not the unconditioned. And I know being a coffee snob is not liberation. <laughs> right? So, you know, you play the game and so on. But what, you know, what is it? What, 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 what was the Buddha pointing to? Is, is there a deep peace of mind? And it's very hard to, to stay present and not preoccupied with your mind, with your thoughts, with your emotions, with your memories, with your desires, with your restlessness. It's very hard not to believe in all that. If you're restless, you get out and you go, right? And, and so the, the mind is always being pulled by sense experience. Non-grasping is, is an art form. You know, it really, it's a kind of a craft which you get better and better at. Because first of all, when you see non-grasping, you think, I shouldn't feel angry. I'm attached. Well, that's not it. You just see that anger is natural. It comes and goes like trains. So one of the ways to develop non-grasping, and that's what I'd like to encourage this weekend, is um, two perceptions and one affirmation. I guess, suppose some people do affirmations. Well, I guess one affirmation would be, I am a unique being in the universe, and the universe loves me in the deepest and most profound sense. Another affirmation, I'm a complete basket case and I can't tie my shoelaces. That's another kind of affirmation. Those are ego affirmations. 
a Buddhist affirmation would be, this is the way it is now. It's not about ego. It's not about self. It's about suchness. And that, I would suggest, is how you get into the ball game, as it were. Because to realize the peace of the mind, you have to stay present. Because if you're preoccupied with past and future and thought, then there's no space for that peace. You're preoccupied with an object called thought, called future, called projection, whatever. It might be worry. It might be resentment. It might be a desire to do something different. But that constant going past future, past future is a hindrance. It's a problem. So this is the way it is now is a sort of entry point to non-grasping. And that in itself is a huge, huge thing, isn't it? And the way people get into the present moment is they climb mountains and watch hockey games because they get absorbed into exciting things. The trouble with that strategy is that it is dependent on the object, right? So if you're into sport and watching sport, yeah, you get absorbed for an hour or so, and then you think, where's the next sport? Or if it's food, or if it's booze, or if it's music, uh, or if it's uh, difficult, exciting things, it always is dependent on the object. So that kind of attention, that kind of absorption, which is dependent on objects, won't really liberate you. Right? Because as soon as the object goes, you your mind's scattered again. So we meditate on boring things. The feeling of your shoulder. <laughs> Or, you know, the feeling of breath. They're very, they're very neutral. They're very, very neutral. But if you can stay attention, attentive to the neutral, it's not a function of excitement and desire. It's a function of your own awareness. So your awareness gets strengthened. So if you can be aware of ten breaths, then you, you start to have a strength of mind which inclines towards the unconditioned. Hence we meditate. So what I would suggest this weekend is like as much as possible... Bring up that affirmation, this is the way it is now. If your mind is very self-disparaging, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm this or I'm that, and no, this is the way it is now. And try to bring your mind to non-thought, no thought. This is an exercise that we need to do a lot throughout the day. It's not a cushion exercise, something that constantly you try to, it's like this. And this has no definition. You, you can put a word on it, but before you put a word on it, what is it like now? And it's like this. So that's that affirmation all the time, all the time. I feel this way. It's this way. And that constantly brings you back to silence and presence, silence and presence, silence and presence. And then how do you sustain that? Now, that's not something you have to get with desire. Like happiness, you have to get with desire or comfort or coolness, room is hot, that, that requires, but this doesn't, this, does, this doesn't require another kind of experience. It's this experience, this experience. So if you do that a lot, it's like this, like this, and then if you take two perceptions, one is that this experience is in awareness. So when I, when I suggested, listen to sound, and then feel your body, toggle between those two, it's a very good one to do. Listen, especially if you have a, a very loud sound like that. Listen to sound. And then bring up the perception. This is in awareness. And then feel your body. This is in awareness. And you notice that even though the sound is perceptually out there and the body is here, you'll notice that both actually are in awareness. They're both the same kind of thing. 
and this is this is a very subtle perception which which kind of works on you it takes it takes a long time this kind of this is in awareness because your the ego mind or the self mind is i'm in the body right and i'm moving through this planet which is true that's true i'm here and jim's there right and i'm here and robin's over at the back there right so that's true. There's nothing untrue about that. But there's a bigger perspective, which is that even depth perception is in awareness. And if you can come to that, if you can come that this is in awareness, very slowly, very slowly, this perception begins to, what does it do? It begins to facilitate non-grasping, if I may say it that way. It begins to be a taste of peace and silence independent of the type of experience you're having, independent of the pain or pleasure or whatever. Because now awareness is seen to be bigger than the objective experience. So that's something that is hard. It, it's not something you can figure out because thought is in awareness too. So I'm just suggesting over this three days, see if you just play with that one for me. Right? You know, drive carefully. <laughs> And don't burn the eggs. But in this experience of life, can you just, like, this is in awareness. Your fears are in awareness. Your loves and hates are in awareness. You can just see that awareness is always there. It's, all, it's presence. It is not dependent on the emotional content of your life. Huh? That it's always there. And so you, you, what happens is the sense of non-grasping begins to function. Because you're no longer looking for an object. This is in awareness. And the second perception, which I would suggest is very helpful to, to sustain, is the perception of change. Now, by perception, I mean something that you're doing all the time, rather than just a philosophical agreement. Yeah, that, that which begins ends. I'm going to die. Oh, my mother died. That's a thought. Right? That's just an idea. But actually, to listen to the train as it's traveling through awareness and to sustain the perception of change, this is changing, brings you to peace. Because you're not grasping the changing object. You are the knowing of change. And that's why the perception of change is so important. The Buddha is brilliant on not just philosophizing and abstracting our, our spiritual life, but actually facilitating this journey by giving you really good perceptions to work with. So let's say you feel some physical discomfort. Okay, so I move, my knee hurts a bit and all of that. But also in meditation, you, you do that, don't you? This is like you, you start to feel some discomfort. You know, you, and after a while, you don't shift. You don't run away from yourself. Oh, this is, pain is this way. It's in awareness and it's changing. And those three things, it's this way. This is in awareness and is changing, begins to st stabilize the mind in non-grasping, in non-attachment, in non-preoccupation. And that is the gateway to the unconditioned. It's the gateway to transcendence or peace. But the usual problem with it is that we lack patience because we want a result. We want to get rid of the ugliness or the pain or whatever. And we react to the sense objects rather than to know them as changing. So... Over these two days, I'll try to just hammer away at those three themes, hopefully other things too. But those are difficult ideas and difficult concepts, but they're doable.
It's something that you do rather than just believe in. When you wake up, it's like this. Really wake up. What are the mental realm doing? This is in awareness. So really establish awareness when you wake up. What's the mood of the mind? And when you're driving and all of that. Okay? Does anyone have any questions around that? I don't know if you're getting the ideas there, but any thoughts around that? Or your own meditations? Yes, please. The back. And when, when I'm listening to the train, I, the thought is this is changing. It brings you to the silence of non-comment. Then if you want to comment on it, then you're preoccupied with the thought. So if you start to analyze the sound, how many, how many, how many, how many cars was that anyway? I wonder where it's going to. Probably, maybe that's going up to Perth, right? You're not noticing change. So quite often what we do is we're just commenting on our pain or our emotions, making some analysis of judging it. Rather than say, well, let's notice the changing nature. So to notice change, you have to be quiet. I make a, an intention to notice change, but to notice the change, I have to be quiet. I have to pay attention. But my attention isn't to get anything out of the object. It's simply to be. And because I'm constantly change, I can't grasp any of it. Now, the grasping mind, the definition mind, which wants to fix, wants to hold on to something, right? So if I give you an answer, then you can hold on to it. But I'm, I'm not giving you anything to hold on to here. I'm just giving you a perception. It's like a posture almost, the posture you're holding in yoga. When you pay attention to life from desire, wanting, not wanting, I want milk, I want sugar, I don't want it, then you're concerned about the object. When you pay attention through anicca, anicca sanya, a perception of change, you don't emphasize the object. Inadvertently, you emphasize the awareness itself. And that's the trick. Whereas desire is taking you out, and this is bringing you home. And the longer you stay home, the more you intuit, oh yeah, there's nowhere to go. And desire is saying, ooh, this, you know, i got to get something. That's the statement, it's like this, right? To get you into the game. It's like this. And if you start to think, well, what's it like? <laughs> you ain't got it. It's really a joke. You either get the punchline or not. <laughs> it really is that way. Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, I'm not advocating you know, irresponsibility. That's why I said the first part of this kind of practice is a good life, a good and responsible life. So, so definitely phone your counselor. But if my mind is always preoccupied with social issues, right, then socially I might be quite effective or not, but I'll never realize a transcendent. So at some point I have to say, well, the world is this way, which, is, which isn't uh, condoning anything. It's kind of just stepping back for a while. And becoming interested in that, right? For instance, the, when we built the monastery in New Zealand, we had a young architect, very, very beautiful design, and he was actually helping to build the monastery, and he was living in the monastery and coming to the meditations, and he had just like reams of ideas coming out. It had to be, it had to be, because he was conditioning the mind to have ideas. And I was glad he was having those ideas. <laughs> but what he did, it was interesting, he had a, a pad of paper. And if he had a really strong idea, jot it down and he'd let it go. That was really quite clever because, he, you know, having made the intentions to build this building, there had to be a lot of thinking. That's the way thought works, right? But he had a way of, of being with that. Whereas if we can get some period of time 
when we're not engaging with thought and analyzing life, but coming to like a more pure attention, then we discover other things. Thought can lead us to, you know, all thought's good, can be helpful. Okay. Be aware. And then don't identify with the objects. Identify with the awareness. Be awareness itself. And that's what we mean by Buddha. That's what we mean by refuge. So Ajahn Sumedho, you know, he used to, he doesn't teach that way much, but he used to say, be Buddha rather than become enlightened. Be awareness itself. Yeah. You know, not as a kind of egotistic. Which is no self. Which is no self. It's yeah, just. That's really what I, I'm trying to get at. Yeah. The personality is an object. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm, like into self-criticism. Oh, I had a bad, oh, I should have, you know, I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have done that. That's an object. That's a thought. Please, yes. Well, as soon as you ask that question, it's an object. So what you need to do is go beyond doubt and to see doubt as an object. And that's one of the more subtle hindrances in the spiritual life is when a, a question comes up, the intellect thinks that the way forward is through an answer. But then you're locked into thought. Right? So that's why in the Korean Zen they say, just don't know mind, right? Don't know, don't know, don't know kind of thing. And why they're pointing to is because we have a, a desire to have truth be a nice lump of thoughts. 42 lumps maybe or something. But that in itself is still an object. So the going beyond doubt in Buddhism is not being a card-carrying dogmatic Buddhist. That's not it. It's just knowing doubt as an object which comes and goes and not needing an answer. So to find the right perspective on doubt, because doubt's very good, it's very helpful, but when we get to the point of witnessing and we ask who's witnessing, that very question is restlessness, is desire. And we have to just trust and wait, but wait for nothing. And that's where the patience runs out. You know, you, you kind of, it's not so hard, really. You get it all the time, and you think, oh, this can't be it. There must be something else. And we start to look for something. Or, or we start to fantasize about a movie we saw or whatever. So trust, patience, faith, those kinds of things begin to arise. Not as beliefs, but rather as attitudes. Yeah? Okay. Yes, please. Well, I've never had children, but my experience in childhood is I had deep experiences of silence, and I didn't know how to relate to them. And that's what actually got me into monasticism, was those memories of deep, deep silence, which would come up maybe, would come up when I woke up. It must have been when I was like six and seven, I can't really remember. But they always kept me very dissatisfied with life. In a very kind of with a kind of lot of existential despair which I didn't understand but something deeper in me knew that that is the goal of my existence and it, it only happened like I don't know not very often but it was so profoundly different that it gave me this kind of hunger to understand what that is so I was a kid then but I've never I've never taught children or had children so I don't know you know, the avenues use of exploration for that, I, I don't really know. There is a text of a, a kid that got his head shaved and was enlightened. Dabba the Malian he was, little guy. I got my head shaved, it didn't work. Like, we, you know, you have spiritual genius. 
just as as you have musical genius. And there seems to be, you know, some beings at a young age are already ripe for this. But for the most part, we have to go through the usual adolescence and until we begin to question inwardly rather than think our our happiness is through external things. But some never even do that either. You know, some remain externalized. Well, it's almost nine o'clock, so I think I guess we could close up. Huh?